we could open our Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 7. We're going to finish the chapter, Lord willing, today, and I believe we can. It is possible. It's a lengthy chapter, as was the one prior. You recall that Jesus, now, he is, as we looked at last week, he was in Jerusalem. The first time he was in Jerusalem, uh, prior to this, since his baptism and him being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Now he, remember, he went to Jerusalem and there he healed a paralytic man who had been paralyzed for a number of years. And he was at the pool of Bethesda, remember? And Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And, and so the Jews, obviously at the time, the religious leaders, they took notice of Jesus They were very suspicious, very jealous of him, because nothing like this has ever happened before, at least not for a long time. They weren't used to seeing a miracle performed, and here Jesus comes along and performs this miracle. Things start to heat up, and Jesus leaves to go to Galilee, and we saw where he ministered to many people, feeding the 5,000 on the eastern shore of the Galilee, and And then Jesus finally does go back, remember at the beginning of chapter 7, his brothers, remember Jesus had um, brothers, half-brothers, and they were encouraging him to go down to Jerusalem and show himself off in a sense. Go and make yourself open to the world, just manifest yourself. And it wasn't the right time for Jesus to do so because he knew there was a time when he should go. But you'll see this recurring phrase in the Gospel of John where it says that his hour had not yet come. And what that means is that it wasn't the right time for Jesus to be manifested in his full glory. And certainly the the, the fullest extent was when he hung on the cross and when he died for the sin of the world. It wasn't time yet. There was a time coming and it was going to be on the Passover. But it wasn't going to be coming until the Father said it was going to be. And so Jesus and the Father in perfect communion and communication knew when that time would be. But until then, no one laid a hand on him because God's ways are are protected by him. He has the ability to change hearts. He has the ability to protect his own when he is operating. And I love that, don't you? Because guess what? You're one of his too. And he has complete control over everything that comes in and out of your life. You may think it's just happenstance or that it's some kind of coincidence, but there is no coincidences for the child of God. Every one of us has the Lord looking out for us. You need to know that. Otherwise, your theology, your understanding of God is going to get really weird. Even the difficult things, the good things, the difficult things, everything in between God allows and we need to trust him in that process. Trust him in the life that he's doing. He's working things in you right now that can only be done through certain means and he knows what means those things are. And yes, even death in a loved one, even sickness, even the, a job loss, yes, even terminal illness, all of these things he allows in our life. But guess what, believer in Jesus? If you are a believer in Jesus, you've got every hope. 
You've got the greatest hope. In fact, the Bible calls it the blessed hope. You have a hope that goes beyond the grave because that is the true reality of the child of God when they take their last breath. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that's the truth of it. If you're a child of God, now if you are not a child of God, you better be worrying because the Bible says that there are only two places. And I'm not ashamed or afraid to tell you, and you know There are only two places for an individual. You either go to heaven and be with Jesus forever, or you go to hell. Nobody likes to talk about that. Certainly in churches today, they want to tell you that, oh, you look so great. Do you feel good? Well, here's, you know, they want to pump you up and give you all this good stuff, and they don't tell you the truth. Well, the truth sometimes hurts, doesn't it? And the truth stings, doesn't it? It does. It does, but it's meant to be. But Jesus was no stranger to trials and tribulations. I think of all the people that walked on the earth, he knew very well what spiritual warfare was all about. The very Son of God. Think of, the, think of that. God in human form on this earth, which we know is enemy territory right now. But Jesus came. He healed And his brothers, his half-brothers, yes, he had half-brothers. He had sisters, too. And they encouraged him to go up. He said it wasn't the right time. And Jesus went up in secret because he had to do that because all eyes were looking for him. And he was just going to do it incognito. He was still going to go and minister to people, but he was going to do it under the radar because his time was not yet. His hour had not yet come. And so we looked at that last week. And so let's pick up in verse 25. And we're going to read down through 29. Notice with me, it says, Now after this, it says, Now some of them from Jerusalem, as Jesus is there on the Feast of Tabernacles, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is not this he who they seek to kill? But look. He speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, here's our phrase, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him, and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? And the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, they sent officers to take him. And then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that, he, that we shall not find him? And does he intend to go to, to, the, to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. And on the last day of that great feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus 
was not yet glorified. We're going to finish this chapter, but let's just stop right there. Obviously, we can see that there's a lot of confusion about who Jesus was. The last time he was there, he healed the men at Bethesda, and it created quite a fervor. And now he comes back, and now he's teaching in the temple again. And there's something about him that the religious leaders are just grating under. They can't stand him because they, had the, they were the teachers. They were the ones in authority. And this guy, they don't even know much about him. And how is it that he is so learned that he has this authority? Because when Jesus spake, he spake unlike anybody else. They were just kind of going through the motions and everything. But Jesus applied things and he spoke in such a manner that it just captivated, it mesmerized people. And of course, because he's God. I mean, think about it. He's God in the flesh. You see, that's what differentiates Christianity from every world religion. Every world religion does not see Jesus as the Son of God, God in human form. The Bible tells us that. That he is God come in human flesh. But every other world religion does not believe that. And folks, that's critical, very critical to our Christian faith. And there's confusion. Even today, even in the 21st century in America, there is still confusion about who Jesus is. That's the title of the message. Who is he? Who is he? And in the church today, again, in America, they're still asking the question, who is he? And why are they doing that? Because no one is, or I shouldn't say no one, there's many that aren't teaching the Bible anymore. They're teaching everything but the Bible. They're getting hooked on politics and current events, little sermonettes, to make you feel good. <laughs> I like to feel good, don't get me wrong, but I want the truth. Because that's what love is, isn't it? If you love someone, you will tell them the truth, even though it hurts. You're going to lie to them? That's not love, is it? Are you, you lie to somebody, you prove that you don't really love them, but when you tell them the truth and you know it's going to break their heart or it's going to be a challenge to them, we have to do it. We have to do it. And so people aren't reading the Bible, so they have this weird understanding of who Jesus is. They don't believe in who he is. They don't even know who he is. They don't know his character. They haven't read through the entire Bible. Have you read through the entire Bible at least once? Maybe twice, three times? I want to encourage you to read this book of God's every single year. Spend some time in certain passages, but get a, there's plenty of reading programs. Read the whole thing every single year. Read it, read it, because in it you're going to find out the character of God. You're going to learn a lot about God, and you're also going to learn a lot about yourself. And you're going to learn a lot about what God does and how he works. And you're not going to be confused like these people were. You're not going to be confused like most of America right now, wondering who, who is Jesus. Many people worship a Jesus. They, they, he does everything they want him to do. Yeah, they're Christians. They call themselves a Christian, and then they come to church with their spouse, and they're 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 not married, but they're living in um, they're living in sin, and nobody says anything. Nobody says anything. In fact, after all, isn't it love? I mean, and then there's a a a, a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Well, it's love, right? God's love. Well, yeah, He is, but His His definition of love and marriage are very clear in the Bible. We have no right to be touching those things. Those things were ordained from the very beginning. 
And they're good for us. And I don't care what anybody thinks about that. Because I believe the Bible. I believe what God says. Do you believe what God says? Yes. We need to believe what he says because it's safety. It's truth. Oh, I love the truth. Do you love the truth this morning? I love it, even when it wounds me. I love what Job said. Though he wound me, though he slay me, yet I know he loves me. I, I warped the scripture there, but you get the point. <laughs> though he slay me, I, try, I will trust him. There it is. It finally came back. Right? We don't understand a lot of things, but trust the Lord. Let's look back at verse 25, though, because they're so confused. Just like we are in America today. Who is Jesus? Well, you've got to read your Bible. You've got to read your Bible. And get a good commentary if you have to. If you don't understand, get a good commentary. I can recommend a couple to you that are really, really good. And you can read a passage. If you don't understand it, you can read something that somebody's really spent the time and the effort and looking, the back, looking at the background and the historical significance and all that. And it, it's, it's helpful. It really does. And pray, pray, church. Let's be a praying people. More than ever, we need to be praying reading the word of God and praying and loving each other instead of shooting each other in the foot because of our shortcomings. Is there anyone here who is without sin? Is there anyone in the room that doesn't have an issue of some kind? Don't we all have issues? We need to stop looking at each other with these squinted eyes and can't believe that. No, we need to love. Yes, correct, in love. Do you know you can do that? It's uncommon. You don't see very many good examples of it. Correcting in love and talking to somebody and showing them the scripture, talking to them about that and loving them through it. You don't have to get nasty and mean. I'm getting off a point here, as you can tell. Let's go back to verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? It's evident from this verse, verse 25, and verses prior to this in the same chapter that there was a lot of confusion about who Jesus was. Look over in verse 12. Notice the confusion there. It says, And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he's good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. Look down at verse 15 right underneath that. The Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters? Meaning, how does he have this understanding, this authority, this learning, this, under, you know, this incredible depth? How does he have it? He hasn't been to any of our schools. He hasn't been to Harvard. He hasn't been to Princeton. He hasn't been to, you know, Yale. To the Ivy Leagues. Therefore, we don't want anything to do with him. He's not part of our club. You know, I don't want to be any part of those clubs. I went to some really great schools. I went to one of the best music schools in the world right here in Rochester. And not to complain about education, that's all good, and we should, you know, but they marveled. How does this man know letters, having never, never studied? They didn't understand how he could have been that knowledgeable and have such authority if he hadn't been through one of their schools, if he hadn't been filtered through one of theirs. But see, a man or woman filled with the Spirit of God will always confound those who are not filled with the Spirit of God. They will be jealous, they will be envious, and ultimately, it'll drive them to hatred and hostility. And if left unchecked, it'll even lead them to murder. Have you seen that? Yes, it happens, doesn't it? We see it all around us. But look, they said, verse 26, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? 
Jesus spoke boldly, and, and no one was stopping him. No one was arresting him. And, 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 and some assume that the religious leaders were now, like, sympathetical with Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, they were confounded. They didn't know what to do. What they really wanted to do was just throw a bag over his head and take him to some uh, black room somewhere and do away with him. That's what they wanted to do, but they didn't know how to do it because the people were mesmerized. Everybody knew something was happening here that's never happened before. And I wonder why they weren't looking in the scriptures. A little investigation could have led them to a great discovery. They could have looked and found out, where were you from, Jesus? Well, I was, I was born in Bethlehem. Had to go there because of Caesar's census. My father and mother, Mary and Joseph, we went down and we had to be there in Bethlehem. That's where Joseph was from, his family. But yes, I was born in Bethlehem. And then, and then they go, oh, remember Micah 5 too. If they would have just done some investigating, they would see that the one, be, the one in front of them fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures to the T. To the T. They were in a quandary over him. They were so filled with anger and wrath. The Bible says that wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. But who was able to stand before jealousy? They were consumed with jealousy. He was bad for business. He was taking away all their converts and leading them to the truth. (gasps) Leading them to the truth. That's what they were supposed to be doing. But Jesus called them blind guides because they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. What a pity that they didn't just search the scripture and just submit themselves to Jesus. His very presence in their their presence brought great conviction because of their compromise. Be careful of this thing called compromise, because once you compromise a little, you're going to compromise a little more, and that's the way compromise works. You start a little bit, and then you get used to doing that little bit, and then you add to it a little bit. This could take months. It could take years, but before long, you are in a pit that you can't get out of. You are in a thing that you thought, and you said early on, I can control this. I can take care of this. It won't bother me. Oh, I can just take this. And Have you seen people like like that oh i'm just sniffing glue next thing you know they're taking they're smoking marijuana oh i can handle that next thing you know they're doing cocaine oh i can handle that no problem then it gets out of hand then they're 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 selling all their stuff and all the pawn shops around and ripping off their parents to buy more crack and then crack's not good enough and then they got to go to heroin i can handle it i can handle it before long you're in a morgue I know this because there's a man on my block who had the same thing happen to his son. Don't let compromise. Stop it right at the very beginning. Don't let it into your life. It is a stepping stone that will lead you down into destruction. Destruction. Keep a short list with the Lord. It's very possible to have your conscience, as it says in 1 Timothy, your conscience seared with a hot iron. When we know the truth and we refuse it and we continue on, our conscience can become seared. We become unfeeling. We become unwilling to listen to the truth any longer. And James tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. Resist him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? This word Christ in the Greek is Christos, Often this term, this phrase, or this, uh, this word, this Greek word, is, is, it's called Christ or Christos, Messiah, or the Anointed One. We'll see this used again in verse 31. 
here in this same chapter. You remember in Daniel when it says that one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible in Daniel 9.25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. That word Messiah is literally Mashiach. It's the same word that we have here, Christ. It's the anointed one, Christ, the anointed one. It's all the same. It's all the same. Christ. However, we know where this man is from, verse 27, they say. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. If they knew where he was born, they might have remembered, again, Micah 5, verse 2. Remember what Micah 5, verse 2, it says. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Speaking very clearly, hundreds of years before he was incarnate in the flesh, it speaks of Jesus. All they had to do was a little research. They said they know where he was from. Many of, some of them did know where he was from. From Bethlehem. The scripture says that's where he came from, and sure enough, he did. What about an Isaiah? that he would come from Galilee as well. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Who is that light? Jesus. Yes, it's Jesus. All they had to do was look into it. We know where this man is from. Some did, but many didn't. But some were hung up on this idea that, the, that, that they, they, nobody would know where Jesus would come from, where the Messiah would come from. But the, but the Bible makes it very clear where he came from. It makes it very clear. We'll look at that more as we go. But notice in verse 28, Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, being there somewhat incognito, having a group of people around him that he was teaching, and he says, you both know me and you know where I am from and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Many of them that were standing there did not know. And Jesus clearly is speaking that he is one with the Father. Do you see that here? The one who sent me, he's the one who sent me. And who was it? God the Father sent him. God the Father sent him. He was sent to earth to redeem man. And the evidence that they understood this is that they sought to kill him because, of, because they thought he was a blasphemer. They sought to kill him. You claim to be God? Well, that's blasphemy. It is true. If you claim to be God and you're not, that is blasphemy. But when you are God, it's not blasphemy. It's just the truth, isn't it? And hadn't they been looking for the Messiah for a long time? And there he is, filling, fulfilling all the scriptures. See, you know what? It's so easy to be religious and just have your head in the sand. But they were religious, and they had their head in the sand. Business was going along. They were, the, the wealthy, the religious leaders were making a lot of money. They had a lot of power and authority and prestige, and now someone comes and is just pulling the rug out from underneath them, and do you think they're going to go quietly? Do you think they're going to be upset about that? You better believe they are. They're going to be very upset about it. But verse 29, but I know him, Jesus said. I know, I know the Father, for I am from him, and he sent me. And again, so critical to know where Jesus is from. He was 
in, he was always preexistent before he even came into the womb of the Virgin Mary. What does the Bible tell us in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, which is Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And Jesus, folks, is not just some other man. He's not some other prophet. He's not just a guru or some holy roller. Jesus is the Son of God. It says in verse 14 of the first chapter of John that he's the Word became flesh. That's what it says. Whoever this Logos is, this Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. There's only one that I know of that became flesh and dwelt among us. The Logos, Jesus Christ. He always existed before, even before he was incarnate in the Virgin Mary, the virgin birth. Isn't that what this chapter, this whole book actually is about this? It's the theme. But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believing you might have life through his name. That is why we go through this, because that is the purpose of the Gospel of John. These things that we're looking looking at have been cherry-picked for us to reveal to us that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's with the Father. Jesus, in John 17, I would encourage you to read the entire 17th chapter of this Gospel because it is wonderful. Jesus spoke these words and he lifted up his eyes. And I want you to hear the oneness. I want you to hear the unity between the Father and the Son. The, 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 they're, 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 they're like this. They're, they're, they can't be taken apart. Jesus said in, in John 17, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He says, Father, the hour has come. <laughs> glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he might give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, notice, with the glory which I had with you before the world was before the world before Genesis 1 verse 1 in the beginning was God in the beginning God created the heavens before all that he was there with him and he goes on and he speaks of the unity and and and, and the pronouns are incredible he's just talking about you and me and I and they and we are together we are one the the whole chapter is quite amazing quite amazing Back in our text, verse 30, it says, Therefore they sought to take him, but again no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again, the power and the timetable of God. God's timetable was not going to be thwarted. No one can play chess with God and win. No one can thwart the will and the plan of God. Man can try all he wants, but here's the advantage that God has. He lives outside of time. Isaiah 57 verse 15 tells us that, that he dwells 
in eternity. That means that he, he, can, he can see the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. Our very lives, God can look upon each one of us, and he knows the moment before we were even born to the moment after we die and everything beyond. He can see it as, all, as if it's already completed. He doesn't control you. You have the responsibility to respond to him and to walk with him, and he lets you have that free choice, which is very scary, by the way. That free choice, you have to make that decision in this life. But he knows already what choice you're ultimately going to make because he already seen the beginning from the end. But that has no bearing on you. You need to choose. Have you chosen? If, if that unnerves you a little bit, hallelujah. <laughs> because the, if it unnerves me a little bit, it's because I'm a little nervous about it. But what is the best thing you can do if you're a little nervous about that? Is give your heart to Jesus. Why? Because he loves you. Nobody loves you like him. Is there anybody who loves you enough to give God would come and die on the cross for you? There's no one like that. There will be no one who will treat you like that. And even though he knows all things about us, he still loves us. Does that just bring your heart into oneness with him? Doesn't it make you want to know him if he's that good? He really is that good, folks. He loves tremendously. His love is like a, like a lightning bolt. His purity is like a lightning bolt. It's like a beam. It's like a laser beam. Oh, my goodness. I can't even imagine the depth and the breadth and the height and the width of God's love and his character and his holiness, his love Oh my gosh, has anybody experienced that? One day we're going to experience it in its fullness. But no one dared lay a hand on him because his time wasn't yet. There were times in the Bible, and we looked at already John 17, verse 1, but there was a time when Jesus said, My hour has come, that time that he would be glorified on the earth, that he would be crucified on the cross, and that he would die on that cross, be buried in the tomb, and then three days rise again. His hour had come. Therefore, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. His hour had not yet come. And I love what it says in John chapter 10. It says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my Father. So let me ask you, was Jesus martyred? Is he just a martyr? Was he just a religious figure that was put to death and we all have his plaque on the wall? (laughs) No, there's nothing under that. (laughs) Believe me, yes, he was killed, but he was not martyred. That verse proves it. He was the one who was in control, not the Roman government. He knew exactly what was happening. In fact, it was that purpose that he came. It was for that reason, for you and I, he loves you with an intense love, even in spite of all the stuff that we've done, even in spite of our past, the ugly things that nobody even wants to talk about, that we would just love to bury in the sea, under, you know, a thousand leagues under the sea, under some rock. You know, we want to bury those things, and God says, I know that about you, and guess what? I love you, and I want you to come to me. I know you're hurting. I know you're guilty. I know what that guilt has done to you. I know what the fear of being exposed, what that's done to you. It's caused your heart to be like a stone. 
You're afraid to be uncovered. Are you afraid to be uncovered? Let God do that. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be in public. God would much rather deal with you in private. He doesn't need to expose you. But it's good to get honest with him because guess what? He knows everything already. Try to play hide and seek with God. David even says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I make my bed in the farther, across the sea, I, you know, there's nowhere you can hide from God. There's no, nowhere. Aren't you glad there's someone like him? That just gives my soul a great release. Can I get an amen? Yeah, I, I love that. But he paid the price once and for all. In fact, on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Your sin has been atoned for. He alone finished it. And he did it once and for all. There are no other sacrifices that need to happen. Back in our text. Yes, hallelujah. Verse 31, it says, And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these? Have you noticed people get hung up on signs? I just want to be entertained. I want to see this thing turn into Pepsi. I want to see this thing turn into Coca-Cola and be cold so I can just, you know. People are hung up on miracles. Is he going to do more signs than this? And yet they say they believed him, but then they said when the Christ, when the Messiah comes, don't you find that a little bit of a paradox? People believed in him, but yet they still, their understanding of him was still incomplete. And that's true for a lot of people, and that's okay. That's okay. It's okay to start there, Right? Because we learn as we grow. We learn as we read the word of God. We learn more about his character, who he is. So some people believed in them, but they didn't completely understand who he was. Certainly their expectations were also skewed. And that's why it's so important for biblical literacy. Every one of us own a Bible. Most families own a Bible, but it's in a box somewhere in storage in the corner with mildew forming on it. Biblical literacy, illiteracy is one of the problems in our country today. And you won't find it in the schools. The only time they get it is when they're here with their, with their families. God has been kicked out of the schools. Now, there are some here that work and are Christians, and you work in a public school, you are the light there. And I don't mean to, um, any disrespect by that, because you are the only light in that school. So don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but the administrators, they don't want Christ. They've rejected him. And is it any wonder our school system is going to hell in a handbasket? Is it any wonder that all the stuff that we see is, being, is creating all these problems? Is it any wonder? I've I, I got to be honest with you, that breaks my heart. You know, it's one thing to be an adult and to be subjected to the nonsense, the whole gender critical race theory, all this stuff, to be submitted and subjected to this nonsense. It's one thing for it to be an adult, but for children, Jesus has a very solemn word for those. He says, if you hurt any one of these young ones, it would be better for you that a millstone were tied around your neck and that you were cast in the depths of the sea. That's God's words, not mine. That's what he said. Pray for the schools. Pray for the kids. Pray for the administrators. Get involved in your school meetings. For heaven's sake, be a, an agent for good. Because let me tell you, if there's ever a time we need it, it's right now. I digress. So, 
but just believing miracles. They wanted to see signs. Romans says, Romans 10 verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith doesn't come by just seeing a miracle. I would encourage you to read the rich man and Lazarus. You know, at the end of that, the the rich man said to, to Abraham in this dialogue, he says, you know, send somebody back to my family and tell them of this horrible place of torment that I'm in. And notice what Moses, or I'm sorry, Abraham said. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. A miracle just comes and goes. It doesn't change people. But what does change people is the word of God. The faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's what we are. Faith, as we are sitting here, our faith is being encouraged. Why? Because we're reading the word of God. That's what encourages my faith, right? Does it encourage you? It's encouraging mine. I love it feel like a kid. You know, I love it. Notice verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. And then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I shall go to him who sent me. And of course, Jesus is speaking of his death that he knew was coming, and he knew that it was soon. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, he would ascend to the Father. I mean, isn't that what it says when Jesus on the cross? Didn't he say there at the end of verse 46 in Luke 23, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit? Yes, he did. He commended his spirit. He was going to go to the Father. They were not going to see him. And after his resurrection, it would be 40 days that he would be seen on the earth. And then he would be he would ascend into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. They wouldn't see him anymore until he comes back for the church at the rapture. Are you looking forward to that day? Amen. I'm looking forward to the rapture. And I'm really looking forward to when we come back on those noble steeds at the end. <laughs> heaven on earth for a thousand years. And then eternity afterwards. I love it. He says, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The reason they couldn't come is because not only would he not be physically present, but at that moment Jesus knew who were his and who weren't his. And he, as he's looking at these people, he can look and see exactly. He knew those who would believe and had genuine faith. But the religious leaders, the one who were supposed to be leading them into God's presence and into God's favor and blessing, they are the ones that Jesus said, you aren't going to be able to come because you don't know me. And boy, was that an affront to them. It's probably a good thing that the guns weren't invented back then. They would have shot him on the spot. Verse 35, he says, when Jesus said among themselves, when, I'm sorry, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? What does he intend to go to the, does he intend to go to the dispersion among the, the Greeks and, and teach the Gentiles? And as natural, you know, they were thinking in the natural, not thinking spiritually. And they were the spiritual leaders, but you still, they're, they're, they're thinking of terra firma. <laughs> Their eyes were always on the ground rather than looking up. What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Again, he knew who were his. And on that day, that last day, remember the the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast, and on the very last day, it was a solemn assembly. 
That great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. One of the rituals that would happen in Jerusalem at this time is for each of those seven days in that feast, the priest would take a golden pitcher and he would go from the Temple Mount and go down south of the Temple Mount into the Gihon Spring, which we visit when we go to, uh, to Israel. And you can actually walk through the channel in the, in the somewhat darkness. It's really exciting. But anyway, so they, they fill the pitcher with water from the Gihon Spring and they take it all the way back up to the Temple Mount and they pour it on the altar. And they do that as a remembrance of how God provided for them water from the rock during their desert wanderings. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And we also see a fulfillment of this even looking forward into the millennial reign of Christ. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Have you drunk deep of Christ? Have you taken it in? When we take communion, that's what we do. We take the the very elements that signify, that symbolically are of his body and his blood. And we take it deep within us. I mean, it couldn't be any deeper. We, We swallow it and it goes in the middle of us. And we agree that he is the Christ. If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink so in this final day, this most solemn day, Jesus offered himself as the, the key to salvation. He is the everlasting stream in our hearts. And he who believes in me, Jesus said, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Doesn't that speak of spiritual contentment and satisfaction? If you have the peace With God, you will have the peace of God. But if you are if you don't have peace with God, it's because of your it's your own fault. It's because you've lived a life of rebellion. And believe me, I remember the day when I gave my heart to Christ, when I asked him to forgive me for every foul and deviant, wicked, twisted thing that I've ever done in my life, and I confessed it to him on my knees, privately, in a room. I remember the very day, and I slept like a baby that night. And I've slept like a baby ever since then. Have peace with God. And how are you going to have peace with God? Through Christ. He is the reason. And then you'll have the peace of God. Have you found that Jesus is the rest that you've always wanted? Have you found that his yoke is easy and his burden to be light? Have you experienced that for yourself? Is your search over or are you still searching? Are you still searching for something out there that can satisfy that that God-shaped hole that only he can fill? It's a a Jesus-shaped hole, and yet we try to stuff everything else through it. A job, a, a relationship, money, success, whatever it is. We try to fit all that into this hole that just doesn't seem to fit. And then once you find him, then everything else gets put in perspective. And wow, life is a blessing. Yes, it is a blessing. Life didn't really begin for me until I gave my heart to Christ. Up until that that time, I was just a slave. I was a slave shackled to Satan. It's true. And so were you, (laughs) right? We were all shackled. And the moment you give your heart to Christ, the key is unlocked, and all of a sudden you don't, you, I'm free. I'm free. Don't you love freedom? 
But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I believe that those who believed in the Messiah prior to Jesus' death and his resurrection were saved by grace through faith, just like we are. The Old Testament saints, they were looking forward to Jesus Christ. They believed through faith in the Messiah. And so they were saved by faith, many of them. Not all of them, but many of them. And we today are saved by faith too. We're saved by grace through faith. We believe in Jesus. But I noticed this thing, it says where it says the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You know, there, um, you remember in the upper room the day after, I got some scriptures here, I'll just bring them up here, but I'm just going to summarize them for the sake of time. In John chapter 20, verse 19 through 22, Jesus, remember the, the very evening of that Sunday morning when he rose from the grave. That very evening, he met his disciples in the upper room. The door's locked, and he appeared. He appeared when the door was locked. So he just appeared before them, and he breathed on them, and he said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. We believe that it's at that moment that the believers, that the disciples were born again, meaning that the Spirit of God indwelt them. Were they saved before then? Yes. They believed in Jesus, but now they had something really unique. Because Jesus was glorified, because he was crucified and resurrected, it was because of that that now the Spirit of God was going to have this new relationship with us where he would indwell the believer. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples? He says in John 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, a paraclete, so to speak, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. He's speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you and this is the very night of the last supper jesus told them the spirit of god is going to be in you pretty soon guys hours from now when i come back when i show up in that upper room that night of my resurrection i'm going to breathe on you and you're going to receive the spirit and the believers were indwelt with the Spirit of God. And it also speaks, the Holy Spirit wasn't given until Jesus was glorified, after he was glorified. So not only do they have the indwelling of the Spirit, those who believe in Christ now, just like you and I, but also what happened 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came upon them, came upon them. Doesn't it tell us that? In Acts, he says, you shall receive Jesus speaking in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 7. He said to them, it is not, uh, actually verse 8, excuse me, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. The Spirit of God will come upon the believers, empowering them for what? Just to give them a, a good feeling, to make them feel good about them? no. The Spirit of God came upon them in boldness to give them power and strength. That was one of the hardest times in the, in the history of the church in the first century. They were vagabonds. They, they were hunted by the Romans. But it wasn't until after Jesus' crucifixion, after his resurrection, 
That very night of his resurrection, he breathed into his disciples, and they received the Spirit of God and dwelt them. And you and I, when we receive Christ, ask him into your heart. Same thing that happened to them in the upper room can happen to us and has happened to hopefully all of us. Receive him into your heart. And what he has done with inside will start to manifest itself out. It'll take time, but you just let it happen. It's sort of like a flower that grows. When you plant it in the ground, you can't see anything. But as it's watered, as we continue to grow, as we continue to read the Word of God, as we continue to pray, what happens? It starts to germinate. And that thing, that beauty that's inside of you, the very Spirit of God, starts to manifest itself in your life in very tangible, very physical ways. Can I get a hallelujah? So I'm feeling a little Baptist this morning. (laughs) Yes. Verse 40, they said, therefore, the crowd says, when they they heard this saying, they said, this is truly the prophet. He's speaking of the prophet that would come. The Old Testament told us about this prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, the Lord God will raise you up a prophet like from me, from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice. He goes in verse 17, he says, and the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet, capital P, for us to understand that that prophet that was to come was to be Jesus. So as we, as we read here, is this truly the prophet? Yes, it is. It told us that back in Deuteronomy 18. Yes, that is the prophet that was to come. Others said, this is the Christ. Yes, it's true. You're getting warmer and warmer. <laughs> you're, you're, fine. you're getting it. He is the Christos. He is the Messiah. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? You remember that time in, in Matthew, chapter 16, it was Jesus speaking to his disciples in the northern part of Israel in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus said this. He says, who do, this, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? I love that. He gives the answer right in his question. Who do people say that I am, the Son of Man? Who, 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 what do they say of me? They say you're the Son of Man. Good. Right, But I I love it. So they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? He brings it right down close and personal. Who do you say that I am? I don't care about what they say. You guys know me the best. You've been with me for almost three years now. What do you say? After all that you've seen, what do you say? And then Peter answered and says, you are the Christ, you are the Christos, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, meaning you are one with God, you are God in the flesh. That's what they meant. Let me ask you this morning, who is Jesus to you? Who is he? They were still figuring it out here in the first century. People are still trying to figure it out now because they don't read this. But having read this, hopefully all of you, at least once. Keep reading it over and over. Believe me, it's a living book. It's not like those Harlequin novels that you buy for five cents at the garage sale. You can read that in a day, and it's like, gone. Ah, not this. (laughs) This is a living word, right? You can read this every single day, and it's going to hit you in ways you never thought possible. And you're like, how did, wow. (laughs) That's the beauty of the word of God, right? But who is Jesus to you? Is he the man upstairs? I hate that phrase. It's so irreverent. Yeah, the man upstairs. He's the man upstairs. 
Did the man upstairs get you off your drugs and alcohol? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just the one who delivered you from your adultery and your sexual sin? Is he a talisman? Is he a rabbit's foot that you hope to save your marriage? And once he does, have you glorified him and given him your heart? Or did you say thank you very much and went about your merry way, forgetting all about him now that he's gotten you out of the mess, that you said, I'll do anything, I'll do anything. Lord, just get me through this. Is he the Lord of your life? Is he the Lord and Savior? Notice, I didn't say Savior and Laura, but is he Lord and Savior? Do you know that over 120 times in the Bible, it says, Lord Jesus. Over 550 times, the Bible says, Lord God. 82 times, the Bible says, Lord Jesus Christ. It never says, Savior and Lord. You won't find it in the Bible. But Lord and Savior, yes. Why? The, 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 the difference is very clear. If he's Lord of your life, then you can have every confidence that he's your Savior. But if you're just saying, well, I want him to be my Savior, but I want to kind of do what I want to do, and then I'll see you at the end of my life. Well, you can do that if you'd like. You could be saved and continue to him, for him not to be the Lord of your life, but you're going to be the, one of the most miserable Christians on the planet. And you're going to be missing out on so much if that is your attitude, right? He needs to be Lord first and then Savior. Because if he's just your Savior, but not the Lord of your life, you're not going to have any real conviction. You're not going to have any real assurance that he's going to really be your Savior either because you're living like hell. Do you get my point? Because that's possible, isn't it? He can be, I can be saved, but I can say, I want to continue in my rebellion and my sin. And, and, and God's going to convict you of it. And you're going to be miserable, there's nothing worse than a miserable Christian. A miserable Christian is really difficult to be around. At least the unbeliever, he's happy in his sin. At least he thinks he is. But a Christian who is continuing in rebellion, oh my goodness, what a hard person to be around. And what turmoil. And it's not necessary, is it? It's not necessary. Come to Jesus. Is he the Lord of your life? Who is Jesus to you? Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Yeah, well, he did. In Isaiah chapter 9, what does it say? We read this earlier. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Yes. Will the Christ come out of Galilee? It's not where he was born, but he did come out of Galilee as well, didn't he? He did. Has not the scripture, verse 42, said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? These people are on it. They know. Yes, he was. You can read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. And it talks about his lineage, that he would go from Abraham to David and from David down to Christ. The, the, the lineage is right there. The genealogy is very clear there. And also Micah 5.2, we've already referenced that. And Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, which we don't have time to get into. So there was a division among the people because of him, and now some of them wanted to take him, but no one dared laid hands on him. And then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. They too were mesmerized about who this man was. They went to arrest him, and their jaws are hitting the ground. They're drawing flies. Their jaws are hitting the ground. Who is this? I've never heard anybody speak like this. Where did this guy come from? 
The Pharisees answered them, they said to them, Are you also deceived? Are you also deceived? Have any of the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, you are not able to think for yourselves. Follow us. Believe what we want you to believe. Yes, the first century thought police. Kind of sounds like the mainstream media, doesn't it? But the crowd that does not know the law is accursed, they said. And then Nicodemus, this wonderful man who did come to Christ, we find out about that earlier, he came to Jesus by night, being one of them. He said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? And here, Nicodemus is doing the right thing because the law said that whenever there was something, a situation like this, they were to talk with him and, and get to the bottom of things. That's always a good thing to do, isn't it? Rather than just presume and suppose that you're, you know, you've got a demon, they'll just kill you. No, you've got to go through, there's a process. Aren't you glad for the process that we have in America? That's slowly decaying, but at least there is still a process to some extent. You can look at that in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, but, but it's in the law. They were supposed to hear the case. And so finally they answered and said to him, Are you also from you know, ridiculing Nicodemus, this really great man? I love Nicodemus because he was among the, the Sanhedrin. He was among the Pharisees. And yet his heart was open enough to say, you know what? I studied the Bible, just uh, the Old Testament scriptures, just as much as the rest of you. But you know what? There's something about this guy. The scriptures are true. Can't you see it? And now he becomes an enemy of his own group. <laughs> they say to him, Does, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee, which is not true, by the way. Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, he was from Gath Hefer, around Galilee, and also Elijah. He was of Thisbe, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but they rose out of Galilee. But notice their open hostility. Being self-righteous, they were willing to break their own law because of their hatred of Jesus. And everyone went to his own house. So who is Jesus? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Who was Jesus to you? He saved my soul. He loved me when I was unlovable. He loved me when I was involved in sin and, quite frankly, enjoyed it. Isn't it a mystery how God reached you? Many of you, hopefully all of you, have come to Christ. But I came to Christ in a really unusual way. Some people, it slowly catches up with them. To me, it was a sledgehammer. <laughs> I'm not kidding. For me, it was a sledgehammer. I was involved in a sin in my life, and the Lord just came down in an instant and just blew me away. But he did it in such a loving, convicting way. Isn't, can't the Holy Spirit, he's the only one who can do that, where he can convict you to the point where you're just like flat on the ground, crying convulsively, and also shed the love of God abroad in your heart at the same time that, that you, you know you're crushed, but you know you're not forsaken. And he just comes along and he says, I know all of this about you, Rob. And you know what? I've paid the price. And you've confessed it. And guess what? I will never look upon that sin again. I will never look upon it again. You know why? Because my son, Jesus Christ, poured out his only sacrifice to atone, to take care of the penalty for that sin. Yes, which you deserved, but he took care of it. And therefore, I see you 
I see him all over you. I can't even see you anymore. I see the blood of my son over you. And that is what gets me to heaven. It's what gets you to heaven. So who is Jesus? Jesus is one who loves you. You know, I've said some pretty pointed things this morning, but please understand his great love for you. There is nothing that he wouldn't do to reach you. There's nothing, there is nothing in the world that he hasn't already done to reach you. And he will continue to reach out to you. Even as a Christian, he's going to continue to reach out. He's going to continue speaking, continue wooing your heart to him. If you have not received Christ today, I want to encourage you. We're not going to have some altar call or anything like that. But would you please come up afterwards, after the baptism? Would you please come up, pray with somebody Grab one of the elders, grab someone and pray with them and say, you know what, I'm tired of my life. I've had it. I, want, I, got, I, got, to, I got to know this one. I have to know him. Jesus said you must be born again. Not, it's a good idea. No, it's not just a good idea. It must happen. Because you know why? Because he loves you so much. He doesn't want to see you in eternal torment. He would much rather have you with him. The Bible says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He would much rather have you safe in his arms. A loving father is speaking that to you, your heart right now. He wants you. He wants you safe in his arms. And it's just a prayer away. Don't resist him. Come to him. Amen. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we do know who you are. And Lord, thank you, Lord, that you are continually revealing to us who you are. Lord, your character, Lord, your love, your compassion, Lord. It's like, an, it's like a multifaceted diamond that every single day we're seeing a different facet and we're totally blown away, Lord. And Lord, we just ask that you'd continue to work in us. Lord, continue to draw us closer to you. Lord, help us to be so willing to confess our sins to you privately. The worst things, everything, every single thing, and you said you would never leave us nor forsake us, that you would cast that sin behind your back, never look upon it again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, there's no greater deal than that in the world. And we just thank you for it. We praise you and we love you, Jesus, and we thank you. And it's in your precious name that we pray. And the children of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.